The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. If you thought it was only our girls we had to worry about with body image, think again. Stay tuned. Our guest is going to shed light on boys and how to help them have a healthy body image. This is the On Boys Parenting Podcast. Thanks for being here. We are your co-host, Jennifer L.W. Fink of buildingboys.net, and I'm Janet Allison of boysalive.com. As many as 75% of adolescent boys are dissatisfied with their bodies. 3% are now using steroids in an attempt to alter their bodies. 7% use supplements, and a 2019 study found that one in five guys aged 18 to 24 had an eating disorder due to a desire to enhance muscles. So if you thought, whew, at least I don't have to worry about body image pressure or eating disorders because I have boys, you're wrong. We do have to worry about our boys. We can't just skip that part of parenting. Boys also need help to develop a healthy body image and healthy habits. Joining us today is Dr. Jason Nagata, an associate professor of pediatrics and adolescent medicine at UC San Francisco. He is an expert on eating disorders, especially in boys and men. And as you will learn, that's a rare expertise. He's also an expert in screen time, LGBTQ plus health and more. Welcome, Jason. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start here. You are a guy. What was your experience with, uh, you know, body image and body changes as a teenager? So I grew up in Los Angeles in, in Southern California. And I think that, you know, the, the biggest influences on teens body image in general are peers, families and the media. And the environment that I grew up in, a lot of my classmates parents were like in acting or modeling just because I think we were near Hollywood yeah that definitely I think was pervasive you know among many of my classmates growing up and I think there was quite a bit of pressure on young people particularly in in that environment so I definitely think that the peers and the families had a big influence on us Um, and unfortunately there were a large number of my classmates who eventually developed eating disorders. And that actually is how I got interested in caring for this population. Ah, interesting. So at that point in your life, you know, when I was a teenager, it was very much thought of and still in many circles is like eating disorders are a girl thing. Eating disorders are primarily no rich white girl thing. Were you aware of eating disorders as an issue with males when you were growing up? No, I think that it was mostly talked about in the female context and a vast majority of body image and eating disorder research has focused on thinness and weight loss, particularly in females. But very few people are doing research or really have a great understanding of the body image pressures for boys and men, which often drive young people to be more more muscular and bigger and bulkier. What inspired you to take that angle in your research? You know, at what point did you realize this is a gap? Fast forwarding through college and medical school, I knew that I was interested in taking care of children and adolescents. And so I 
actually one of the first rotations I did in medical school was in the adolescent clinic where we unfortunately had a large population of people who were affected by eating disorders. And I remember that one of the first patients that I took care of was a 16-year-old boy. He was on the wrestling team. He had been suffering for years and checking his weight and his himself in, it, in the mirror several times a day. And his parents just thought something wasn't quite right, but they couldn't quite figure out what was going on. And so they brought him into his primary care pediatrician, who then eventually brought him into the eating disorder clinic. But I will say that it was probably two and a half years before he was identified as having an eating disorder. And during that time, he had really suffered a lot and ended up actually having some pretty serious medical complications that required hospitalization. And uh, I remember trying to read about how I could better help him, even as a medical student who's learning. And there was almost nothing in the literature. All the guidelines for eating disorders on medical management seemed to be focused on girls and women. And, you know, even talking about loss of periods as one of the, you know, diagnostic criteria. Right. You're like, well, I guess I'll check this for him, but it's really not relevant. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so it it actually taking care of him and realizing that there was so little guidance for male eating disorder patients um, then led me to really want to pursue that in my career. You know, you mentioned um, he was a wrestler and I have four sons. None of them have, I mean, I guess one of them did like a wrestling class when he was five. So none of them have really wrestled, but wrestling just really seems to set the stage in so many ways. Like you literally have to make weight to be in a certain class. And just anecdotally, you hear about, you know, the things people do to try and make weight, either go up or go down. And none of it sounds particularly healthy. Yeah, I think this is also part of the issue of why it's hard to diagnose and and identify these boys who are struggling, because a lot of these behaviors, like if you're on the wrestling team, the types of behaviors that they do are completely normalized in the wrestling team. But in the end, you know, fasting for 24 hours or more, Go, you know, sweating off all of your water weight and stuff like that. Um, if you were a girl and you did that, you'd be hospitalized. <laughs> but because it's like masked under this normalcy of um, athletic participation, I think that a lot of boys, unfortunately, get missed. That is such an excellent point. And what I have learned so far is that when it comes to body image and eating disorders, generally speaking, for a lot of boys, it's not so much a desire to be thin as a desire to be muscular, to be strong, to have that that look. And so boys may be more likely to present with a, a heavy obsession with exercising or some strict eating guidelines around that. Can you highlight some other like differences, how eating disorders may present differently in boys and young men than what we think of and what we might be alert for if we were parenting girls? I think that because the feminine body ideal is promoting thinness, and that leads to weight loss. A lot of the behaviors that girls engage in are sort of the typical eating disorder behaviors that we think of, like meal skipping, disordered eating, fasting, vomiting, laxatives, and severe restriction of food intake. And these are most the most common questions that doctors and primary care providers are thinking about when they're screening for eating disorders. Sure. But because the masculine ideal has become increasingly large and muscular, In order to achieve that, many boys are actually doing muscle enhancing behaviors. So that can include overconsumption of protein while restricting carbohydrates and fats, um, using drugs or other supplements to enhance their muscularity, 
Um, that can be anywhere from anabolic steroids, which are illegal and very dangerous, to you know any other number of supplements or combination of those that can currently be bought over the counter yeah. or on the internet. Um, and then, as you mentioned, excessive or compulsive exercise. The more I've thought about this, the more I think it's really challenging for us as parents, teachers, healthcare providers, coaches, to see these things because we live in a pretty disordered culture when it comes to eating and health and exercise anyway. The the idea that thin equals health and that exercise is good, like those two things are such a solid, prevalent baseline belief that it's hard for people to think that exercise could be unhealthy or that caring about what you eat could be unhealthy. I do think that it is a very complex dynamic and relationship because I don't want to say that people shouldn't exercise. In general, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that all children and adolescents get 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity a day. And there's lots of benefits to, you know, moderate exercise. And most kids actually don't exercise enough. Um, But I think that it's sort of a slippery slope where a subset of kids who really become obsessed with it, who it becomes more of a nuisance um, in terms of emotional or health benefits, um, when the exercise itself is causing more worry or preoccupation, or you feel guilty when you're not doing it, and it starts to impair your social life or work or daily functioning or schooling, those are all potential red flags that you may have um, an eating disorder or another diagnosis is called muscle dysmorphia. And so part of the complexity in eating disorders and muscle dysmorphia is that there's, you know, a strong mental health component as well as a physical health component. And so in terms of the mental health um, or just emotional aspects of it, you know, the same activity for the same, for different people may actually be perceived um, and lead to different types of distress. And so, you know, exercise in a person who may be predisposed to an eating disorder or muscle dysmorphia can be really distressing. um, Whereas the same activity for someone, you know, isn't triggered by that um, could actually be beneficial. So I think that's also one of the challenges in trying to parse these apart. Yeah, no wonder it's so difficult for parents and providers to figure out what's going on. Um, Are there certain characteristics or risk factors who among our boys may be most at risk for tipping over into an unhealthy relationship with food or exercise? I think that it is complex. And because of the limited research in boys and men, we don't know exactly the the causes and it can be different for different people. Um, But in general, um, I do think that sports participation, especially sports that, uh, as you mentioned, have strict weight cutoffs, like for wrestling or crew, like people who actually as part of the sport have to make weight cutoffs, Right. Um, you know, that sort of is a potential risk factor. But we also do know that certain sports that promote bulkiness or being bigger, um, like football or rugby can also add more pressures for the muscularity um, ideal. Um, And so that boys who are we we do know that certain sports do add pressures in terms of trying to gain weight and bulk up. And aside from that, I think in general, the history of like any kind of bullying or or childhood trauma can actually then predispose someone to want to get bigger or maybe even defend themselves. And there are at least for the classic eating disorders like anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, there is now thought to be a genetic component as well. But I do think that it's kind of a complex interplay between nature and nurture. Yeah. One of the things that I'm wondering is 
Do you think, and perhaps you know already from your research, has there been an uptick in disordered eating, unhealthy exercise in recent years? Or is it simply that we didn't previously recognize this and name it in boys? Or is it a mixture of both of those things? I think that it's a mixture of both of those things. And it's just very complex because the last few years, I think also was affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, And the highest risk of age of onset of eating disorders and these body image issues are in sort of the teenage years. And so certainly we saw a doubling or even tripling, unfortunately, of eating disorder presentations during the pandemic for both boys, girls, and all genders, really. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that that was a big, you know, understandable stressor that led to body dissatisfaction, isolation, that that then led to more eating disorders, or for people who were already suffering from eating disorders and exacerbation of symptoms. Um, So I do think that that was a big driver over the last few years, um, in terms of eating disorders increasing. But even before the pandemic had come on, there was already trends and rises in eating disorders. And I do think that the prevalence or at least identification of eating disorders in boys and men was also on the rise, certainly not at such a steep increase as we saw during the pandemic. But I do think that there were these trends even before the pandemic. Um, And some have linked that potentially to even the rise of social media in the past decade. You know, because media is one of the big influences in body image, you know, traditionally, there's always been Hollywood or television shows and magazines. But I think one of the unique pressures of social media is that like any kid now can become an influencer and they actually put their own bodies on display. Whereas I think previously, most people were kind of in a read only environment where, you know, they could consume this media, but teenagers wouldn't expect that they would be in a Marvel movie. But now with social media, kids, if with the right following, with the right kind of posts, with the right kind of content, with the right muscularity, you know, they can gain followers, become influencers and even make money or, you know, become popular based on that. And I think that that pressure has also been a driver over the last decade. And it seems like it is so easy for our kids to find all kinds of advice and inspiration. And I'm putting air quotes around inspiration online. And we all know about the algorithms and how they will feed things to kids. But Anybody can put stuff up and be a fitness influencer and give eating advice. And that does not mean it is good advice. Yeah, absolutely. There's very little fact checking or quality control. And so I do think another important skill that we can teach our children and teens is really to be good consumers of the media and really identify when things could be misinformation or could be more unreliable sources. When parents start getting concerned, it seems that a common hurdle then is, okay, I'm concerned enough. What do I do? It seems like a reasonable first step for a lot of parents is I'm going to, you know, schedule a doctor's appointment or healthcare provider appointment for my son. And here is where uh, sometimes there are additional hurdles, not intentional, but as you well know, there are not a lot of providers, especially primary care providers who are stressed, overworked, and don't have enough time with their patients to start with, who are really well-versed in this either. So what would you say to a parent who's concerned about their son and is heading into this appointment? How can you initiate the conversation and how can you advocate for your son? Um, Unfortunately, there is a lack of training on eating disorders in general in primary care and then even more so for eating disorders in, in boys and men. And so I do think that 
if you have concerns and or there are certain behaviors or um, things that you're noticing that that you might want to raise with your pediatrician or your child's primary care provider. Um, I do think that usually, you know, if they're a teenager, there's time when you're all in the room together with physician or the, the medical provider. And then there's also some time often with the teenager and, and their provider solo. And so I do think that during that time when you're all together, you know, you could kind of bring up some of those issues. Sometimes they have you fill out intake forms. And so you could also raise it there, or you could even give the provider a heads up before the appointment. Sure. Or even so like you could uh, send a note in, you know, if you have my chart or whatever electronic, you know, communications with your physician, Hey, this is kind of something I want to talk about. Here's what I'm seeing. Here's what I'm concerned about. I mean, I do think that it de- it's going to depend on your child and your comfort with communicating with them and, and stuff like that. I think if you are in a place where you can have an open conversation with them and you have these concerns, I think it is best to actually voice it with to them and mm-hmm. with them. But I also understand that, you know, there are some situations and especially if somebody has a full-blown eating disorder where they really aren't, the child is really not able to identify the, the problem themselves or really acknowledge it. I do think it is still important for you to mention that to the provider, even if it, you know, may be an uncomfortable conversation. And even if, um, you know, your child is not pleased with it, I do think that, you know, it's also not going to serve them well to not get help. Brief pause for these messages from our sponsors. We'll be back with more from Jason Nagata, our guest talking about body image and eating disorders. I like cute clothes. I like having stylish outfits and I hate shopping. Armoire makes getting dressed easier. Armoire is a clothing rental membership option. And Janet and I recently have both tried it out. And you guys, it is so much fun. You go to their website, you get to take a little quick style quiz, takes five minutes, and then you get presented a list of beautiful clothing, pictures, wonderful clothes that you can pick out and get delivered to your house for you to try and wear in the comfort of your own home without going out and determine what looks cute together outfits without investing a ton of money. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off your first month. That is up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash envoys. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E, dot style slash on boys to get 50% off your first month and never have to worry about what to wear again. Try armoire today. One of the most challenging things about being a woman at midlife is realizing how little people understand about perimenopause and menopause, Janet. I just had a conversation with my sister about that this weekend. She is 10 years younger than me. So I'm 51. She's 41. And she went to ask her healthcare provider, hey, can you provide me some information? And she got information, but she was frustrated by how incomplete it seems, how little we know, and how for way too many people, the answer seems to be, yep, that's the way it is. Deal with it. Mm-hmm. Deal with it. And not only are our mamas out there having to deal with perimenopause, likely at this age, but many of our moms are dealing with their sons 
entering or in puberty, which is kind of nature's irony, which is, oof. Cruel joke, Janet. Cruel joke. Cruel joke. Thankfully, thankfully, increasingly, there are those who are recognizing that women need and deserve competent care and treatment for perimenopause and menopausal symptoms. And we know that can still be harder to access than it should be, which is why we have partnered with Winona. Winona helps women who are dealing with menopause or perimenopause. Winona is a collection of OBGYN health professionals who believe that your symptoms are important, real, and deserve to be taken seriously. Telehealth, you can access care from your home when it is convenient for you. Visit buywinona.com today to start your free visit with free U.S. shipping and the ability to pause or cancel at any time. Your path to wellness has zero obligations. Use the code ONBOYS at buywinona.com for 25% off your first order. That's B-Y-W-I-N-O-N-A dot com slash on boys. Winona, menopause care made easy. As a parent of a teen, your child will not be pleased with a lot of what you do. And yet, there are things that do have to get done. That conversation can go so many ways, though. I mean, you know, even if you bring up your concerns to the provider, there will be some again, well-meaning, but just perhaps not educated and aware who will brush off those concerns. You know, uh, hey, he's a growing boy and he's in football. And hey, uh, how's the team doing this year? Absolutely. So I, I do think that if there are certain behaviors or things that you're noticing that are maybe more specific that you could mention, there, there are certain things that I think physicians are trained to react to or try to figure out if there are problems. So certainly if there are any of these kind of disordered eating behaviors, whether the classic ones like fasting, skipping meals, or vomiting, or taking laxatives or diuretics, um, or severe food intake um, restriction. I think those are things to bring up because those are all things that are red flags for an eating disorder. Yeah, it's possible that um, some of the muscular um, building behaviors like the you know protein overconsumption or, or taking um, some of the supplements may not um, raise red flags for a provider, but especially if there, if there is sort of substance use issues that are concerning. I, I do think that those are things that a provider will want to know about, and you know, because they have potentially severe medical uh, consequences. You mentioned protein overconsumption twice now, and I wanted to ask you about that. Like, what does that look like, first of all? Because it seems like so many, not just of our guys, of our young young males, have gotten the message like protein is good. You need more protein. You're working out protein, protein, protein. That just seems to be such a common message. And my understanding, uh, in my background, Jason, I was educated as a nurse and worked as a nurse before I transitioned to writing and podcasting. Like most Americans are not short of protein, just baseline. To me, I mean, there's a wide range and, you know, there's, you know, people can get natural protein, they can get protein supplements um, and supplements come in all shapes and forms. I mean, I do take care, unfortunately, of patients who literally eat nothing but protein. They will eat 3000 calories or more of just protein supplements um, and cut out all other food forms, essentially. And so I, I, I have sort of seen all flavors of, yeah. of this. I do think that, uh, I mean, certainly having 
a balanced diet and having like different um, different food categories is recommended. But aside from that, I, I think that one thing that you know parents should also know is that most of these supplements that people can buy online or over the counter, they're not regulated by the Food and Drug Administration, like yeah. you know most medicines um, or other products are. And so you're not necessarily getting what you think you're getting. You know, possibly protein. Um, supplements are are innocuous, but they're especially the ones that have combinations of things. There have been lots of studies that have actually chemically tested the products that are in some of these muscle building substance concoctions, and they're actually mislabeled. Many of them are actually tainted with steroids or other illegal products. Right. And there's very little quality control. So you don't really know what you're getting, especially, you know, for the internet products. And so I do think that's something that parents and teens should be aware of just in general, that even if you are intending to buy something that doesn't necessarily have poor health effects. Oftentimes they are. And we also, there are also studies that have shown that people who start out using some of these protein products or, or more innocuous uh, muscle building substances are more likely later on than to use steroids or other illegal products. So it is kind of a risk factor. So as parents, how concerned should we be if our kid brings home, you know, a, a, big tub of the protein powder or he's getting the you know the protein shakes and the protein drinks because from my living with a teen and young adult boys and talking to others it is so ubiquitous it almost seems like at some point everybody at least tries it for a while thinking this will help and there's trying it i don't think a a protein drink here and there is going to be a problem like you said it's a spectrum but how do we handle this with our kids yeah, I mean, I think that if it's done in moderation, you know, it's probably fine. Where I start to get concerned is when it really becomes a pro- preoccupation or obsession. Um, and, you know, the, the even the act of eating this protein or, or their diet rigidity or rules about muscle building really affects their quality of life and their functioning. So, I mean, I do have patients who are so adamant about their protein regimens that they, you know, have a very, very strict schedule. They will not deviate from it no matter what. And that actually means that they won't eat with their families. They won't eat Mm. out with friends. They are stuck in these ways and they have to have this much protein at this much time right after their workout. And it actually precludes them from socializing with other people except for people in in, in their gym network. Um, And it even can affect schoolwork or, you know, for people who are working um, a regular work in a way that kind of impairs their daily functioning. So I think that those to me are, are when I, I get concerned, but probably in moderation, it's probably okay. So parents, you know, as much as it can drive us crazy sometimes to like see our kids eating Takis again or spending their money on the Takis or, you know, going out for fast food again with their friends in moderation, not all the time, but those are those are good and healthy things, aren't they, Jason? Yeah, I think everything in moderation, well, not everything, but most things in moderation. <laughs> right. <laughs> One of the things I believe your research has touched on, and you alluded to this before, you know, some of the traditional assessments for eating disorders were tailored to to girls. Is there something different that healthcare providers should be using to assess boys that can more accurately um, assess them? And is this something that parents should ask about if they're concerned? I do think that the original diagnostic criteria for most of our eating disorders were based on female presentations. And so even the the main symptoms and diagnostic criteria for anorexia nervosa, for instance, are really based on the presumption that people are trying to lose weight and become thin. And we know that that doesn't uh, you know, really apply to many 
boys with body image issues. And so, you know, previously was like a criteria for loss of periods and then also even a weight cutoff. And so, you know, these are all things that I think make it more of a quote unquote feminized illness because it Mm -hmm. really does capture more of this thinness oriented pursuit. And I do think that, you know, even some of the, you know, for instance, another symptom that we think of sometimes with eating disorders is binge eating. Um, And, you know, there's a binge eating disorder. Um, But I will say that sometimes guys do binge eat, but they don't think of it as binge eating, like it's a cheat meal. And so like, there's even like nomenclature, or like, you know, ways that people think about things that are kind of like masculinized, and therefore, not disordered. But if you actually think about them, they're very, they have lots of similarities. So I just think that that's something that people should also be aware of. That's another kind of normalized thing. I didn't think about it until you said that. But first of all, binge eating, you know, well, he's a teenage boy, he's going to eat a lot. Oh, he must be going through a growth spurt. Certainly some of those things can be true. But then I'm flashing to, you know, the, um, the stereotypical spaghetti meal before the football game before the meat. Some of this is very normalized. I think that even in social media or even in the tech world, you know, I'm in the Bay Area and all these tech CEOs, I think, um, you know, promote diets that are, in my view, quite extreme. Like I think Jack Dorsey, like the former CEO of Twitter, you know, would endorse fasting where he only eats one meal a day and then he fasts for 22 hours a day. In any other context that is, you know, kind of concerning, especially if you're trying to do physical activity on top of that, these are being framed as as very trendy diets or like biohacking or stuff like that. But Again, if they're kind of like reclaimed and re remarketed, but rebranded, like the actually rebranded in some ways. But if you actually, again, if like a teenage girl told us that they were fasting and only eating one meal a day and fasting for twenty two hours every other day, that would raise lots of concerns and red flags for you know most you medical know, providers. And the other thing to keep in mind is that adolescence is a time of tremendous growth, physical growth mental growth. The body needs calories. The body needs to grow during that time phrase. Yes, absolutely. You know, teenagers are going through their growth spurt, they're developing bone, and this is really their critical period when they have to do that. And if you have kind of missed out on it during this growth spurt, then they oftentimes can't make it up. Brief pause for these messages from our sponsors. We'll be back to talk about the long lasting health impacts. This episode is sponsored by By Heart. Babies need to eat. And whether you breastfeed or bottle feed, use formula, combine all of the above, you need options. We wanted to let you know about By Heart Baby Formula. By Heart has a patented protein blend that gets the closest to breast milk. It includes two of the most abundant proteins in breast milk. And Byheart actually ran a clinical trial comparing their formula to a leading infant formula and proved that babies on Byheart have softer poops, less spit up, and easier digestion. Byheart is also the only U.S.-made infant formula to use organic, grass-fed whole milk. So if you need baby formula for your baby, consider Byheart. New customers can get 10% off your first order by using code on boys at byheart.com. That's B-Y-H-E-A-R-T dot com slash podcast. And it is 10% off your first order. Byheart.com slash podcast. 
This is a limited time offer and additional terms and conditions may apply. One of the most challenging things about being a woman at midlife is realizing how little people understand about perimenopause and menopause, Janet. I just had a conversation with my sister about that this weekend. She is 10 years younger than me, so I'm 51, she's 41, and she went to ask her healthcare provider, hey, can you provide me some information? And she got information, but she was frustrated by how incomplete it seems, how little we know, and how for way too many people, the answer seems to be, yep, that's the way it is. Deal with it. Mm-hmm. Deal with it. And not only are our mamas out there having to deal with perimenopause, likely at this age, but many of our moms are dealing with their sons entering or in puberty, which is kind of nature's irony, which is, oof. Cruel joke, Janet. Cruel joke. Cruel joke. Thankfully, thankfully, increasingly, there are those who are recognizing that women need and deserve competent care and treatment for perimenopause and menopausal symptoms. And we know that can still be harder to access than it should be, which is why we have partnered with Winona. Winona helps women who are dealing with menopause or perimenopause. Winona is a collection of OBGYN health professionals who believe that your symptoms are important, real, and deserve to be taken seriously. It's telehealth. You can access care from your home when it is convenient for you. Visit buywinona.com today to start your free visit with free U.S. shipping and the ability to pause or cancel at any time, your path to wellness has zero obligations. Use the code ONBOYS at buywinona.com for 25% off your first order. That's B-Y-W-I-N-O-N-A dot com slash ONBOYS. Winona, menopause care made easy. You mentioned that 16-year-old boy at the beginning and that he had, you know, some lasting health issues. And I interacted with somebody recently on Twitter who also pointed out, you know, you mentioned with girls and loss of period. Can, you know, this this restrictive eating and how does this affect boys potentially long-term? Are there hormonal effects for boys as well? In boys, we don't have this physical marker of loss of periods that I think is, you know, more noticeable to, you know, the teenager and potentially their parent. But the same effect happens. So um, when you are in this state of relative malnutrition, you're not getting enough energy to sustain your growth and and bodily functions, the body does start to shut down and you are in a starvation state. And so many of the boys that we do take care of will have low testosterone levels. And so that's sort of the equivalent in in boys. Just we don't have periods to mark that. But if you actually test their testosterone levels, oftentimes they are lower. Um, And I will say that and this is like a little bit of a reverse psychology or whatever. But to me, the, the one thing that often gets 
cool boys most concerned about this is that if you are in this starvation period during your growth spurt, then you won't reach your maximum height potential. And for whatever reason, heightism is prevalent in boys and they really want to be tall. Yeah. Again, this is another pressure, unfortunately, of body image. But I will say it's the one that oftentimes gets people motivated to get back on track. If they realize that they're not going to reach their height potential because of this, then oftentimes they will go, you know, back onto a more that regular is eating really pattern. interesting. What are your thoughts for, you know, how can parents ideally support healthy body image, healthy eating, healthy activity in our boys? I do think that it is a complex question, um, but in general, I think that promoting kind of open-ended conversations. So if you are able to, for instance, eat together as a family, like over dinner, um, having family meals, I think can be protective because it first it allows you to see what, what your children are eating as opposed to them being in like a room by themselves and maybe just eating protein powder or, or nothing. You don't know. Yeah. And then ideally, it also then promotes, you know, a time to have conversation or check in about how people are doing. Um, and that might also give you some insight into struggles or benefits or um, that they're having throughout their day. Um, so I, I do think that family meals is a good way to check in and also get a little bit more data on on eating patterns. Other than that, um, I do think that it's important to kind of practice what we preach. And so, um, you know, as I mentioned, one of the biggest predictors actually of children's eating habits and um, influences into eating disorders even is actually what they observe in their parents. And so I do think that if you're going to promote a certain way of eating in your household, it's important for the most part to try to model that. I think the other complexity is that, as you mentioned, teenagers are growing. And so the parents may have unique health conditions or, or whatever. So sure. I, I think that's, you know, complex. But in general, if you're able to, I think that practicing what you preach um, is important, because even though they may not think it, actually, parents are a big influence on, <laughs> on teenagers, including their eating habits. Yeah, so. the kids aren't necessarily going to admit it at this stage in life, but we are and they are watching and things are landing with them. Jason, this is such a huge area. And, you know, as you said, there's not a lot out there. There's more. Where can we point parents to, you know, for additional information? Let's say that they're they're concerned and they need some additional support or they need some just reliable resources that they get some help navigating this. The National Eating Disorder Association has a website and some resources for eating disorders in general, but then also for specific populations like boys and men, for LGBTQ youth. Um, and so I do think that that's a good first start for resources. And as we mentioned earlier, even though not all primary care providers may be perfectly equipped to handle this, I do think that it's worth bringing up if you have concerns, because at least they might be able to refer you to a mental health provider or a specialist who, who can help. Let's say that we have a listener who's like me and likes getting into like the geeky and scientific research. Where can people stay up to date on your research in this area? We have a lab website. It's the nagatalab.ucsf.edu where we do post some of our research. And there's a section on eating disorders in boys and men and eating disorders in sexual and gender minority populations. And so I think that we try to post links to our latest research over there. I want to thank you so much for the work that you are doing um, with this population. It's under-researched. It's probably underfunded, but you are highlighting these things. You mentioned, and we didn't get to talk to it a lot, but you know there are, there are differences uh, with gender and LGBTQ youth, LGBTQ boys may have different issues than cis boys. And I so appreciate that you are out there working in this space 
educating providers and ultimately helping boys thrive. Thank you so much for those kind words and thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found this episode valuable. If you did, please share it with a friend. And thank you for supporting our sponsors. This is the On Boys Parenting Podcast. We are your co-hosts, Jennifer L.W. Fink of buildingboys.net, and I'm Janet Allison of boysalive.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.